Mekir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his feet and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Take home, to take home that pew Bible, which is right in front of you under the chair. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day, for your word, which we are blessed with to hear, to consider, and Lord, I pray that you would indeed speak to us by your word. Use my mouth and keep me from all of my frailties and failings and keep us in our listening from the same, that we might bring your name honor even in how we receive your word. I pray in Christ's name, amen. In 1 Samuel, we saw David homeless, hunted, hated. He was a man after God's own heart, and so he was never without hope because God had anointed him to be Israel's next king. And despite all the chaos of David's early life surveyed in 1 Samuel, we see that God is always behind the events, guiding them, bringing David through those considerable trials to place him upon Israel's throne. And so now in 2 Samuel, the crown is upon David's head. After that long, arduous journey, finally the crown is upon his head and Israel's perennial enemies, the Philistines, they have been subdued and defeated. The house of Saul, which had persecuted David for so long, is now all but, has now all but vanished from Israel. And there's this sense, finally, of peace in the land, peace in Israel, unity among the people, victory issuing forth from Jerusalem, the seat 
of David's power. And additionally, on top of all of these wonders, David restored order and honor to Israel's worship of Yahweh. And that wasn't enough, though. He wanted to do more. He wanted to build Yahweh a house, a temple. And Yahweh had been living in this tent, moving about for all of these generations. And, and David wanted to settle that, finally build him a house. That desire of David's, which David expresses in 2 Samuel chapter 7, is the very pinnacle of the story of David. Wanting to build a house for the Lord. And God says, no, you will not build for me a house. I will build for you a house. Not meaning a palace, but a household, a family. And then Yahweh delivers to David an incredibly glorious covenant, a promise. We call this the Davidic covenant. Last week, Steve Covell did a tremendous job preaching on 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. And in the Davidic covenant, we see God promise that David would have a great name, that he would be a prince of peace over a land of peace, and that he would have a son or a descendant coming from David's line. And that descendant would have an everlasting kingdom, a dominion with no end. David's son, this descendant, this one, will have a powerful relationship with God. And he will be like a son to God, and God will be like a father to him. And this son will bear iniquity, and his faithfulness will be unrivaled, and he will be God's beloved, and his reign will be forever. This son. Now, some of these things were partially fulfilled in David's life, and some more things were partially fulfilled in Solomon's life, who was David's son. But all the promises of the Davidic covenant entirely and eternally are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of God. The Davidic covenant delivered to David, realized in Jesus Christ. So 2 Samuel 7 is an incredible height, the pinnacle of David's story. Covenant promises that even flow to us today. Then we move into 2 Samuel chapter 8, if you're reading through the narrative. We're going to skip it today. We're going to skip it in our sermon series. But in 2 Samuel chapter 8, there's this one sentence that I want to direct your attention to. That's 2 Samuel 8, 15. Look at that with me. 2 Samuel 8, 15. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. What an incredible statement to say of a ruler. How can we say that about our rulers? We, but Scripture says it of David. And then you come to chapter 9 where we find ourselves today, and this is something like a demonstration of David's justice and equity that he dispenses from his reign. And it also begins a new section, really a subsection within 2 Samuel. This section of 2 Samuel explores David's royal court, particularly his family, sort of what's going on on the inside of power in David's reign. And so it starts in chapter 9 here, and it goes all the way to chapter 20. And I want to read what Walter Brueggemann writes about this section of 2 Samuel. 
So Walter Brueggemann writing, he says, 2 Samuel 9 through 20 dares to articulate the interior hurt, anguish, conflict, and ambiguity that operate in these hard-nosed players of the royal game. It dares to affirm for all the public appearance of official reality that there is another dimension of reality in which the royal figures are utterly human in their hurt, their hate, and their hope. This literature is an invitation to see behind the ideology, to discern what humanness is all about when lived in the presence of this haunting God and in the presence of earthly power that invites, seduces, and destroys. So things are going to get very messy in this section of Scripture. We'll see that begin next week. But this week, I think somewhat mercifully, before we are plunged into the scandal and pain, we are mercifully greeted by a story of compassion or hesed and grace. And again, we see a shining example of David's justice and equity. So what I want all of us to see today, I want to I define it and unpack David's hesed for Mephibosheth. And that this, is this, that this has said, Christ has shown to us, and now we are to show to others. There are glories for us in chapter 9, one of the shortest chapters in 2 Samuel. Look at verse 1 again. And David said, Is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So if you don't know, Saul was the first king of Israel and his reign was tumultuous at best. He had rejected the word of the Lord and as a result, the Lord had rejected him as his king. And so through a decades-long process, the house of Saul had utterly fallen and as I said before, all but vanished off the face of the planet. Nearly all the descendants of David were dead. And so it appears that David is unaware of any living survivors in the house of Saul. And yet because of a promise that David had made to Jonathan, Jonathan being Saul's son, years ago, David wants to be completely sure. Is there anyone left in the house of Saul? Jonathan was David's closest friend. They were allies. They loved each other. And back when they were both young men and back when they were accomplished warriors fighting for the Lord, David made a covenant with Jonathan. He promised that he would always show Jonathan steadfast love, that he would always show the house of Jonathan steadfast love. The Hebrew word for steadfast love, for compassion, is hesed. It's also the exact same word that's translated as kindness in our passage. When you see the word kindness in our passage today, that's the word hesed. And David promised said to Jonathan's house. And now that he's king over all Israel, David finally has the ability to make good on that promise. It was a promise that really didn't, only, that didn't take effect until he was sitting on the throne. So now he is ready to fulfill his promise for, David, or for Jonathan of said, And he says, is there anyone left that I can show this said to? So he doesn't know. Jonathan has any sons left. So notice what he says. 
He doesn't say, is there anyone left in Jonathan's house? He says, is there anyone left in Saul's house? But he's going above and beyond that covenant promise he made. David has said his steadfast love for Jonathan is so great it overflows the boundaries of covenant now. Spilling out into the wider house of Saul. Saul, the house of his enemy, right? Saul hated him and pursued him and hunted him. And now he's ready to find any living descendant and pour his love on them. It's stunning. This is said, this steadfast love, this kindness, this compassion. It's nothing short of miraculous. It is the expression of the Spirit of God that was resting upon this king of Israel, upon David. Now look at verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness has said of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is a cripple in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And then Ziba locates him in the Transjordan, up north, which was the territory of Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth, Mephibosheth, remember him? Ishbosheth, Saul's son. So Mephibosheth is somewhere up there, or this crippled man. We don't know his name yet. It's interesting to me that somehow David knows that Ziba knows that there is a arise from Jerusalem, likely coming from that Transjordan area. When Ziba arrives, the first thing he does is immediately forsake his former master, Saul, and he throws himself before David and he says, I am your servant, David. He will not pledge his allegiance to a dead house, but to the house of the living king. And he knows of this remnant, a cripple. And he's not just a remnant of the house of Saul. He's, he's actually a descendant of Jonathan, a son of Jonathan. This is more than what da- that David was looking for, more than what he had hoped for. He didn't know there were any left. So the, f- the fact that this son is a cripple, it underscores why David didn't know about him. It meant that this Son couldn't possibly hold any position of power. He couldn't, he couldn't move in, into any political position. In, the, in this day and age, cripples at that time had virtually no status. And we see this all over the New Testament too. Cripples are basically pushed to the margins of society. Nobody wants them. Nobody, nobody cares about them, maybe except for their family. Cripples are just not on anyone's radar. And it's notable that up to this point, the text hasn't even said his name yet. Mephibosheth. It is as if he is a no-name. But David loved Jonathan. How could he possibly have lost track of one of Jonathan's sons? Would you lose track of your best friend's son if your best friend had died? No. You want to be in their life. You want to care for them and help them, do whatever you could. But David's lost track of him. Let's read what happened immediately following Jonathan and Saul's death in battle. It's in 2 Samuel 4, 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. 
He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled, in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So if David had met Mephibosheth before, he was a boy, a healthy boy without disability. But there was something that happened, some terrible accident, some calamity as he and his nurse were fleeing for their lives from Gibeah because they knew that the Philistines, having defeated Saul and Jonathan, killing them in battle, having defeated Israel's army, were now invading the cities of Israel. That's exactly what happened, and they were coming for Gibeah. So the nurse and Mephibosheth were fleeing for their lives, and on the way, this calamity. Mephibosheth is crippled. And from that point forward, Mephibosheth's life was one of hiding. A descendant of the king, the Philistines would want him dead. And now he was cut off from the prominence of Saul's house. And even if Mephibosheth came out of hiding some decades later, his family was dead, his life was marked by obscurity, and in some sense Mephibosheth likely wanted it that way. For the way of the world was that the house of new kings would kill the house of old kings. Mephibosheth had been too young, five years old, to remember that there was a covenant between his father and this new king. So instead, and sadly, the name David likely struck terror into the heart of Mephibosheth, and he probably wanted to be forgotten. Yet however much fear had filled his heart, however much he preferred to stay hidden, No one can resist the call of the king. And as the next verse says, the king brought Mephibosheth to himself. Verse 5, Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness, has said, for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land that Saul your father and all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? So Mephibosheth comes before the king, comes before David, and it says that he fell on his face and he paid him homage. What do you think it would have been like for a crippled person to fall on his face before Saul, or before David? Awkward, uncomfortable, not like all of these other people who do this, graciously falling before the Lord. It would only put on a display of his disability. And if, that was a, if falling before the king was a humble act for an able-bodied person, how much more then for Mephibosheth? And then the first person to speak the name Mephibosheth is the king. Immediately proceeding with, with words of salvation, with an oracle of salvation, with those classic words 
Do not fear. Isn't that exactly what Mephibosheth needed to hear in this moment? Do not fear. He was probably trembling before the king, not knowing what was about to befall him. Do not fear. Words that in Scripture nearly always precede words of salvation. And then for the sake of Jonathan, David promises Mephibosheth, Hesed, the Hesed of God. Kindness, compassion, steadfast love, that David is giving his faithful, loving loyalty to this obscure, crippled man. Yeah, the king's agenda is nothing that Mephibosheth could have ever asked for or ever imagined. But see this, brothers and sisters, has said doesn't stop with words. There must be action. It isn't has it isn't said anymore unless there's some activity that follows it, some action. So David then immediately confirms his promise of has said, his words of love, by giving Mephibosheth all of Saul's lands, all of his fields. And so, in, in other words, Mephibosheth goes from an unknown disgrace cripple to instantly one of Israel's most wealthy men in a moment. Because David chose to love him. Not because of anything in Mephibosheth, but because David, the king, chose to love him. And if that's not generous enough, David then gives Mephibosheth this, this breathtaking honor, a place at the king's table, to sit at the king's table for every meal. David, or rather, verse 11 helps us to understand why this is such an honor. Look at the second half. Of verse 11. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, listen to these words, like one of the king's sons. What did David do? Yeah, he brought him into his court. But he brought him in as, as if he was one of his own sons. It's almost like David is adopting Mephibosheth in this moment, elevating him to the status of his own sons. And now, this is really stunning to consider that Mephibosheth comes from the house of Saul. By bringing him in to his table and, and nearly elevating him to the position of a son, David is bringing Mephibosheth into his household. The house that God made covenant with? The house that will endure forever? What an incredible honor. Now Mephibosheth is is a beneficiary of promises that will endure forever. So when Mephibosheth is confronted with the king's overwhelming, has said, look again at how how he responds in verse 8. He says, What is your servant? That you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. Oh, wretch that I am! Who am I to receive these great rewards? What have I done? Nothing. Mephibosheth knows he hasn't done anything. He doesn't merit this, he doesn't deserve this. And yet, this flood from the king, uh, this flood of Hesed from the king, overwhelms him. 
And he knows that in any other situation, because simply of his, because of his bloodline, he's a dead dog. He would have been slaughtered in any other in any other worldly kingdom. He knows he's a dead dog, painfully aware of his helpless and desperate estate. And I wonder by now, can you not hear the eternal truths reverberating out of this passage? Can you not hear yourself, your Savior, in these words? Christ is everywhere. Look at verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belongs to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, Mephibosheth. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then... Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Saul likely owned a very significant number of fields. Right? Because it's going to take Ziba, his 15 sons, their 20 servants to tend the land. Land And servants, truly, David has given Mephibosheth fabulous wealth. So with such wealth now, Mephibosheth doesn't need to eat at David's table. He has all the food he could possibly want. He has enough food to feed communities. He's not poor anymore. But it is purely for the sake of honor, purely for the sake of family, that David brings him into his table. He wants Mephibosheth with him. Going on. Verse 12, And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. There is so much that is foreshadowed in those words. I don't have time to get into it all. But it is wonderful to see that all David promised came to pass, and Mephibosheth received honor and wealth and family because of David's hesed love, because of God's hesed love given to David, poured out on Mephibosheth. And the passage ends again, stating that Mephibosheth was crippled. And honestly, it's super abrupt. It seems weird to just drop that line again at the end of the chapter. Why would, why would you do that? It reminds us. Mephibosheth deserved nothing. His condition barred him from any position of power. It prevented him from working his way into any form of success or achievement. In more ways than one, Mephibosheth was unable to rise. But this is a particularly ironic deal, uh, ironic detail, 
When you remember the lame men that lived in Jerusalem once before, do you remember this from chapter 5? When David conquered Jerusalem, and David came against them and he defeated them, and then afterwards, after defeating these blind and lame Jebusites in Jerusalem, there's this saying that goes out in Jerusalem, certainly, and perhaps in all Israel, a saying that in 2 Samuel 5, 8, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. The house of the Lord. And yet here is David in the most intimate, tender, compassionate way bringing a lame man into the house, making Mephibosheth a part of his household, a final reminder that Mephibosheth Blind or lame as he was, was receiving more than he ever could have asked or imagined because David's generosity, his Hesed love for Mephibosheth, was extravagant. And now we have to shift gears and consider how David's covenant love points us towards God's covenant love as expressed in the face of Jesus Christ. And I think that there is this passage in Ephesians 2 that so parallels many of the truths that we've been looking at in 2 Samuel 9. Ephesians 2, verses 1 and then 3 through 7. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and were by nature the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love, has said which he loved us, And even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So that he might show us for the immeasurable riches of his said towards us for all coming ages. And yet we are the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, and just because of our fallen bloodline, what we deserve is death. We are fallen, and we are constantly choosing sin. We can't turn ourselves away from it. We are like Mephibosheth. We are the sons of the enemy. We are the children of wrath. But there was a covenant of Hesed, spoken long before you were ever born, before any of us were ever born, a covenant that was ratified and sealed in the very blood of Christ, who is the son of David, who is the son of God. And he promised on his life that he would show us his lavish kindness, his compassion, his steadfast love, his said, in spite of all of our very many trespasses and our failings and our bloodline, in spite of all of that, he would give to us his love. And then because of his great love, because of his extravagant mercy, He takes us from our desperate and lifeless estate and he makes us come alive, come truly alive, come eternally alive. And that 
Though we die, yet shall we live. And then more than this, more than this, he seats us with himself. Just as David seated Mephibosheth with himself, but greater, so much greater for our seat, not found in a city that is perishable, that will fade, but found in a city that is established in heaven's highest height, imperishable, unshakable, uncorruptible. So for all coming ages, we will sit with Christ, recipients of the immeasurable riches of God's grace and has said, streaming to us in the face of Jesus Christ. Is this not a wonder to you? Does it not pierce your heart how awesome this gift? It should cause each one of us to fall on our faces before this king of all kings and cry out from the depths of our hearts, I am your servant. I will follow you wherever you go. I am yours. It should be the delight of our hearts to follow this king. And so what does he call, what does this call, this king call his servants to do? This is my commandment, he says. That you love one another as I have loved you. Has said one another. As Jesus has shown us his has said. This is not something this has said that we are to show others. We don't just sit around and talk about it or strategize how we're going to go do it. This cannot be something that we speak, but it never reaches our hands. That isn't, that isn't said. That isn't what Jesus was commanding us to do. And John writes elsewhere, the Apostle John writes elsewhere, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Let us not have said only in our speech. We must do it. David's covenant of said that he made to Jonathan. It wasn't just a promise he made decades before 2 Samuel 9. It was a love that demanded action. It was, it was over and abounding in action. It was a love so obvious that no one could deny that love. said is, is nothing if it isn't action. And so likewise, love and kindness and compassion, these things must have action. Praise God. Praise God that we saw has said glimmering through our creation camp this past week. And I do pray that the children received it, that their families receive it. But I know personally, I know we all know personally, that loving people is really hard. I am an incredibly selfish person. I prefer being introverted. I don't want to be with anybody. And all of you who helped hire me as pastor are probably like, oh man. It's difficult. And then what if what if a person has a disability or some socioeconomic difference or a, or a difference of opinion? Maybe they're on the other side of the political aisle. Try to love them and 
That love wars, is at war with every selfish impulse within me and probably within you too because I want ease and I want routine and I've got my pride and I don't want to love like that. But my king has said that I am to love one another as he has loved me. When my heart is cold, and indifferent, like it so often feels. I need to remember, we love because he first loved us. So when this is empty and cold, when you feel that too, when everything is screaming for selfishness, You don't need to get down on yourself. That's how you were born. You take that heart, cold and hard as it is, and you bring it before Christ again. And you remember what he has done for you. Remember the incredible love that he has shown, the the life that he has given to you, the incredible riches that have been poured out for you, purchased by the blood of Christ that you never deserved and you never earned because you were a dead dog. So you bring that heart to him, you child of wrath, and remember that you are now a son or a daughter of the Most High God, brother or sister to Christ, part of the eternal family who will live forevermore, who is seated with Christ. Let these truths fill your heart afresh. This said, given to you through Christ Jesus, our King, and look upon Christ, look at Christ, and then ask the question, is there anyone in the house of my enemy that I may love? That I might show his said for the sake of my King? Ask yourself if you are willing to bring someone into your family Maybe they're poor. Maybe they're a no-name. Maybe they're socially crippled. Christ is willing. You know how I know that? Because here we all sit with him. By grace, you have been saved. Father, you are You are good beyond words. Your truths are life-changing and transforming. And they bind us to you eternally for all time. It's, It's a wonder. Because we know we didn't deserve a bit of it. I thank you for this, this simple story of David and Mephibosheth. And yet, how through it streams these heavenly glories. May these glories penetrate our hearts, every one of us in this room, and draw us all to yourself. Show us what it means, Father, to love like you have loved us. Show us what it means to bring, to bring Mephibosheth into our own home. Thank you for your love. I thank you for your kindness. 
I thank you for your said that you have poured out upon us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray it. Amen.